today. We are so glad that you're here. It's a joy to meet new people. My name is Dave Furman. I serve as the senior pastor here at Redeemer Church of Dubai. As you can see, we, over the past two weeks, we've jumped back into the book of Genesis, which is the first book of the Bible. If you have a Bible and you haven't already turned there, you can turn with me to Genesis 37, which Benoit just read from. If you don't have a Bible, you'll see the words again up on the screens in a few minutes or in the bulletin. But as you turn there, I want to mention two brief things. First, um, if you're unaware or you walked in late today, we do have our next membership class happening this morning, uh, or this afternoon, I should say, from 2 p.m. to 9 p.m. You'll get to meet elders and staff of the church, get to learn more about our church. So if you're new and you just want to know more about us, you want to take the first step in the membership process, It's not a commitment to join or a guarantee you'll join, but you'll get to learn more about us, meet other people who are new. That's today. We still have space, so you can just show up, find a map in the bulletin. Well, I also want to give you a quick update on my health. Uh, I'm thankful that many of you have been asking about my arms and how I'm feeling, how I'm doing these days. I'm really thankful for you. If you're new to us, I have a nerve disorder that affects both of my arms and has affected them for the past 10 years. Uh, I can't open most doors, I can't drive, I can't pick up our children, I can only lift up to maybe about two kilograms. So I'm I'm virtually handicapped. I may look healthy as I flail my arms around as I preach, but I assure you that I am disabled and and actually in constant pain. Now the pain can be quite agonizing, it distracts me from sleep and of course from doing other things. Uh, And some of you may remember last year I mentioned that I've developed similar pain in both of my legs and that remains true. But thanks be to God, God has provided for me, for our family. He's persevered us uh, through that trial. And I mention this just for a couple reasons today. One, uh, just for you to pray. We certainly would welcome your ongoing prayers for perseverance, uh, for, for healing, for increased godliness. And secondly, uh, I want to tell you, uh, for you that are new, why I can't shake your hand. Seems like an obvious thing you do. I realize that sounds strange that the pastor wouldn't stand by the door on the way out and shake everyone's hand. I mean, you know, for a pastor, that's really, there's really only two job duties, right? One, preach sermons, and two, shake hands. So I thought I'd tell you why I can't fulfill half of my duties. And I was alerted to this at the last membership class in June. I share my story there uh, in my testimony time, and I kind of talk about my disability and why I can't shake hands. And after that class, I had a gentleman who ran up to me afterwards and felt really bad. He said, I've been angry with you, and my feelings have been hurt because you wouldn't shake my hand. And I try to explain it to people, but sometimes it doesn't come through. And I just want to tell you that, that I love you. I love this church. Even though I can't shake your hand, I love you. I'm grateful for you. Uh, I'm not being rude if I can't shake your hand. I'm not being rude if I can't be in the midst of a big crowd. I'm not being rude if my wife's carrying four kids in all of our bags and I'm walking around doing nothing. <laughs> I really wish I could pick up the bags. Uh, but in God's sovereignty, as we've already been singing and praying about this morning, God's sovereignty, I can't do those things. And that's okay, because God gives grace uh, to all of us in whatever circumstances we face. So, thankful for you. You've been so patient and so kind with a broken pastor. Um, Love you and grateful for you. Well, on to Genesis chapter 37. Many of you are familiar with this chapter, with these chapters of Genesis as a whole. My children love the animated movie, Joseph, King of Dreams. But this isn't a story just for children or one for the movies. It's one of the most amazing stories of all time. And it's a true story. True stories are the best stories, after all. This is a story of a hero who overcomes all odds. Sibling rivalry. There's betrayal. 
murderous intentions, slavery, prison. There's a famine. It's a story filled with conflict and temptation and improbable coincidences where there's more happening than meets the eye. In the first 36 chapters of Genesis, we've covered a few thousand years. But now, in these last 14 chapters, the book slows down and focuses on one family. It's as if the camera lens of Genesis is now zooming in on Jacob and his sons. All of this is part of the unfolding plan of God, creation, man's rebellion, and now the long road to redemption. How is God going to bring about his promises? He's made promises, Abraham. We saw it reiterated last week to Jacob. How is God going to do so? How is he going to fulfill his promises, not just to them, but to the world of gathering a people to himself? Well, Jacob's family isn't your top pick to be a conduit of blessing to the world. I mean, this is one dysfunctional family. They're a mess. Heard about it last week. We read about it this week. Well, this section actually begins in verse 2 of chapter 37. These are the generations of Jacob. That word generations is used as a transition in the beginning of each new section in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 2, you see these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Then we see these are the generations of Adam and of Noah, the sons of Noah, of Shem, of Terah, who was Abraham's father, Isaac, Esau, and now Jacob. Jacob is the last one listed here in the Old Testament because the rest of the Old Testament is about the whole nation of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. The very next time in our Bibles we get that idea of generations, we're actually in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1 where we read the genealogy of Jesus. Well, in our passage today, there are three different scenes of action. If this were a movie, three different scenes, three different locations of filming. If you're taking notes, I'll walk through these three scenes, and then I'll offer up four observations. So three scenes, and then then I'll give you four observations. So scene number one is in the father's house in verses 1 through 11. Joseph is 17 years old, we're told. He's working with his brothers, and he brings a bad report back to his father. This phrase, bad report, is normally used in Scripture in the negative sense of an untrue report. Maybe it was an embellished report of some kind. Joseph kind of sounds like a tattletale here, doesn't he? You know, every family has one. I mean, how many of you have a brother or a sister? Maybe one of them would come to your parents and say, Hey, Dave's eating the candy again. You know, tattletale enjoys telling on his brother or sister. He or she enjoys seeing them get in trouble. Well, looks like Joseph is the family tattletale. And... His brothers are not happy about it. The brothers are already unhappy with Joseph because he's been dad's favorite over the years. Verse 3 shows Jacob's heart, doesn't it? He loved Joseph more than any of his sons. Well, Jacob is the son of his old age. He's Rachel's firstborn. And after all, we know that Rachel's Jacob's favorite wife. All this is confirmed when Jacob gives Joseph a robe of many colors. This is a bit like giving one of your children a bright t-shirt that says, I'm my daddy's favorite. I mean, you don't do that. 
It's like coming home with a big, overflowing, creamy ice cream cone and giving that to one of your children and then telling the rest, hey, go, go off to the refrigerator and find some broccoli to eat. <laughs> I mean, that's cruel and unusual punishment. I mean, parents, make note of this. Parenting tip number one, don't play favorites. You just, just don't do it. We need to love all of our kids equally. We need to have a relationship with each of them. We need to pursue all of them. And the other kids are in hand-me-downs. Maybe Reuben passed his old clothes down to Simeon, who passed it down to Levi, who passed it down to Judah. And here's young Joseph, 17 years old, in his robe of many colors. Now, the, the robe wouldn't necessarily have been bright colors like we see in the movies. What that means there is that it was lavish. It was fancy. It was a rich cloth, rich clothing. It was a tunic that would have covered down to his wrists and then down to his ankles. It was formal wear. It wasn't something you'd go to work at the farm or the ranch wearing. It would be like sending Joseph to a construction site in a fancy three-piece suit or a tuxedo. While the brothers would be working and their clothes, sweating it out, there's Joseph in his tuxedo just kind of taking notes on his clipboard, watching what his brothers were doing. He wouldn't have been sweating. He wouldn't have been exerting energy in that robe. Well, this, this wasn't the first time that Joseph's favored it, is it? Remember when Jacob returned from the promised land and he's all scared of his brother Esau and Esau's approaching him with 400 mighty men. What does Jacob do? Well, he says, okay, hey, hey, Rachel and Joseph, why don't you guys go all the way to the back where it's safe? He leaves all his other sons and their mothers up in the front in harm's way. Remember that? It was the worst kept secret in the world. Jacob loved Joseph the most. Everybody knew. The brothers were so angry they couldn't even speak peacefully to him. They couldn't even utter a nice word to him, not even to fake it. And some of us are good at faking it to people we don't like. These brothers couldn't even fake it. The situation was getting bad fast. But it even got worse. Now Joseph was having dreams about his family. They weren't feel-good dreams, at least not for the rest of the family. I mean, dreams in the ancient world, they were taken seriously because they were thought to come from God. They were often filled with symbols that needed interpretation. Well, Joseph's first dream is there in verse 7. I mean, hey guys, I had this dream and we were all binding sheaves of wheat in the field. And, well, my sheaf was upright and all of yours were bowing down to mine. Basically, all you guys gather around me and you bow down to me like I'm supreme. Now, this is probably not what big brothers want to hear from the little man of the house, is it? I mean, we don't know why Joseph told his brothers. I mean, why did he tell them? Was it, was it out of pride? Did he lack discernment? Was he foolish? Maybe he was just telling them the dream. Maybe just giving them information. And the situation's just getting worse and worse. And then he has another dream. Joseph still doesn't get it. He tells his brothers again, oh, but this time it gets better. He says, hey, it's not just you guys, my dear brothers. All of creation is bowing down to me. The sun, the moon, and the stars to me. I'm the king of the world. Aren't you guys happy for me? Let's celebrate. I'm the king of the world. Now, now here's another tip. Just hypothetically, not saying this will happen to you, but hypothetically, if you have a dream where you're the king of the world and all your brothers are your servants, don't tell them. Maybe just keep that one to yourself. If you really have to get it out, why don't you get your journal out? Why don't you write it out and then lock it up in one of those with a little key and then tuck it under your pillow? You know, just, just leave it at that. Not a real friend maker. 
big claim by Joseph. This is a big deal. Older brothers don't bow down to younger ones. Parents certainly don't bow down to their children. No, they were outraged because humanly speaking, this can't happen. Well, now Jacob rebuked him as the father, but he did take note of the dream. He seems to kind of know that, uh, yeah, there, there might be something to this. Well, that's the end of scene one. That's Jacob's house. Well, now scene two shifts to the field in verses 12 through 30. Sometime after the dream, Joseph's brothers were out pasturing their father's flock somewhere, and apparently Joseph stayed back at home. Jacob wants to know how his sons are doing, so he says, Hey, Joseph, why don't you go out and check up on your brothers and send me a report? Well, this was no small trek. This was 80 kilometers away. It would be a five days journey there. And it's strange that Jacob would send him alone in his robe, but off he went. And when he gets to Shechem, he finds out that they're another 20 kilometers away. They're in a place called Dothan. And so he keeps going. He's determined. I mean, that's faithfulness and determination. I mean, I don't like it when I go the wrong way in Dubai Mall and I feel like giving up and not finding my restaurant. And yet here he is by himself, five days journey, finds out, actually, hey, your brothers, they're another couple, couple days journeying away. And okay, Joseph's faithful. He goes. He gets out there and he finds his brothers. But when they see him, they're not very excited, are they? That's, that's putting it nicely. I mean, one of them, we don't know which one, but he yells out and says, here comes the dreamer. Let's kill him. I mean, this is the definition of a dysfunctional family. I mean, kids may have little fights with each other, but these are grown men and they want to murder. And they won't even say his name. I mean, the word brother is used 21 times in this chapter. But not here. And the fact that they're ready for murder at the sight of the guy means that bitterness and anger is strong. And they plan to kill him. Well, as the oldest, Reuben was in charge and he'd be answerable for anything that happened. So he says, no, guys, let's just throw him in a pit. Let's leave him. Let's teach him a lesson. There's no reason to kill him. As you see, the assault was frantic. The word to strip there, and they stripped him of his robe, that's the idea of skinning an animal. They ripped off the robe, they threw him down naked in that pit like a piece of meat. And Joseph must have cried, he must have screamed, right? Help me, get me out of here. Maybe he was even crying out to each of his brothers. Zebulun, Asher, are you there? Simeon, Levi, Judah, Reuben, come on, Reuben. The, the hole that Joseph would have been thrown in was a cistern. And so it's where they kept water. It would have been real narrow at the top and then would have gotten wider um, as it went down to the bottom. It would have been extremely deep. And we know this one wasn't filled up with water because Joseph would have, would have drowned, but he's there at the bottom. And it, it would have been impossible for him to climb up out of this thing. It would have been too tall of a task. Well, while they dump him in, the men are there, and the men happen to look up and see a caravan of Ishmaelites. It's the other side of the family tree. They don't really get together for the holidays, but Judah suggests that they sell Joseph to them. Maybe they can make a little money. It's better than just letting him die. We can 
get them out of our hair, maybe not know what happens to them and make some cash. So they pull him out. This must have toyed with his emotions. It looks like he's getting rescued only to become a slave. I mean, talk about a bad day. This is a bad day. Started off in a robe as daddy's favorite and ends up a slave. Now, 20 shekels wasn't that much. It was the typical price you would get for selling a slave. So it's not, not an especially good deal. They're not wealthy now. And selling someone into slavery wasn't much better than murder. In the ancient Near East, it's virtually the same because either you're stealing someone's life in an instant, like murder, or you're stealing someone's life over the course of their lifetime. It's about the same. And as Joseph was taken away by his new owners, the brothers dipped Joseph's blood, or Joseph's robe in blood of a freshly killed goat, and they start back home. At some point, Reuben, he had left them. Don't know where he went, but he comes back and he finds out that Joseph's gone. The text says he was going to rescue his, his brother, but his passivity, indifference failed him. And he tore his robe, probably at the thought of having to face his father. As the oldest son, father would have come to Reuben and say, hey, what's, what's happened to Joseph? So he's now going a bit, bit crazy at the thought. That's scene number two out in the field. Now the sons are coming back home and we see scene number three, verses 31 through 35, back at the father's house. Now they're, now they're back where they started. And it's a short scene. The boys walk home. They have five or six days to come up with a plan of how to talk to dad. When they get there, they show him the robe and say, hey, we found this robe. It looks like your son's. Is it? So cold. No mention of his name. They say, your son, not even our brother. Jacob says, well, yes, it is. Surely Joseph has been torn to pieces by some animal. Jacob tore his garment, sackcloth. He just, he just wept, began mourning. And then, may, and then we get maybe the sickest and saddest verse in this passage. The boys try to comfort their father. All the children try to comfort their father. These boys, these men, have just devastated their father. And they keep the ruse up by trying to pretend that their deceitful lies are real. And all while they watch their father brokenhearted, devastated. I mean, I can't think of anything much worse than having your child die. Just the agony for the parent. These sons have put their father through the ultimate agony. No one confesses the truth. Not one of them. Not even Reuben. Not Judah. I mean, that's the story. This is dark, isn't it? This is horrific. This is dysfunction. This is sad. And unfortunately, it's painfully relevant to our lives today. Every bit of it. Let me give us four observations. There's the Exposition, there's the story. You've heard it read by Benoit. You've heard me explain it. Let me give you four observations, one at a time. Number one, God is doing more in your life than you can see right now. There's more going on in your life than you can see and comprehend. In virtually every chapter in Genesis, God's name's literally written all over them. But not this one. There's no mention of God's name. And there's no theophany like Abraham or Jacob encounter. 
God never appears to Joseph and says, hey, son, everything's going to be okay. I know times are going to be rough, but hey, I'm with you. It's okay. Things will turn out rosy in the end. Joseph doesn't know much. Except that he's going from being a favorite son with a fancy coat to being a naked slave in the blink of an eye. Woke up a son, went to bed a slave. I mean, how do you make sense of that? How can you see God in that? And friend, maybe that's how you feel today. You feel abandoned, helpless, afraid. And you you honestly cannot for the life of you see God's hand on your life right now. Maybe minutes, maybe days, weeks, months of your life when God's presence isn't felt. You're still reading your Bible. You're still looking in the text. You're trying to find comforting words. But God may still feel distant. Maybe you ask, has God forgotten me? There's a lot of people in the world. Maybe he can't keep track of all of them. Maybe God has just, just forgotten about me. Your life's a mess. You're in so much pain physically, you literally can't think right now. You and your spouse so desperately want children, and yet it's miscarriage after miscarriage that leaves you without child. Or maybe you two just can't conceive at all. Or maybe you're a new mother, and you're so tired, your eyes are aching, and you don't know how you can even get through the next four hours. You were passed over for that promotion Again, perhaps your dreams are shattered. You came to Dubai to take over the world. And yet now you're doing what you feel is menial tasks. And you think to yourself, there's so much more about me that the people around me just don't know. Or you just can't get out of debt. It's just piling on and you feel suffocated. Maybe you have a family back home and they're under such duress. And all you want to do is just reach through that phone and just just hug them and And care for them and tell them you love them. I mean, nothing's going right. And where's God? Where's God in all of this? I mean, is he absent in my life? Is he absent here in Genesis chapter 37? I mean, his name's not anywhere in the chapter. Look at what's happening to Joseph. Is God gone? Well, look carefully. And there's no mention of God here, but look at what we see. God sends the dreams to Joseph about the future that set off his future. Jacob sends his son alone to check on his brothers. And then think about what happens on the way. Joseph just happened to come to the area where his brothers had been. A stranger happened to overhear the brothers' plans in going to the city of Dothan. And Joseph just happened to run into that same stranger who tells Joseph exactly where they've gone. They're about to kill him when Reuben the passive happened to be there and to speak up and spare him from death. Then there was the passing of a caravan of Ishmaelites who happened to come before the brothers left him for dead. And they happened to be bound for Egypt. Now these are not and cannot be coincidences. If any of them fail to happen, all of them fail. And look at verse 36. I intentionally skipped that verse until now. At the very moment Jacob was wailing the death of his son, 
the worst moment of his life. Look at what God was doing. Verse 36. Meanwhile. So Joseph's mourning and wailing. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. I mean, Jacob's just, just mourning. It's the worst moment of his life. 80 kilometers away. Meanwhile. Meanwhile. Joseph is sold into the household of a top Egyptian official. He's not an ordinary slave. He's in a place of higher authority and responsibility and connections. I mean, Jacob had no idea. Joseph had no idea. And the readers, we have no idea until we come to that last verse. When this struck me yesterday, I'll be honest, I just burst out into tears at my desk. I mean, Jacob's in the worst moment. His life is shattered. Let me read verse 36. Read that one word. Meanwhile. Meanwhile, God is placing Jacob's beloved son in a position to save not just his family, but a whole host of people. We'll see that in the last chapters. What mercy. God showed Jacob mercy. God showed his sons mercy. God showed Joseph mercy. And God is showing the Egyptians mercy. I mean, friends, God is active. He is not silent. He's not gone. Romans 8.28 is real. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Friends, that verse is true always. Unless everything happened exactly the way it happened in the story, just in that order, everybody dies. Because there's a famine and it's going to come. And yet Joseph has to be put in the place where he has power. And we'll see that he gets put there. No, God purposes all these things to come to pass according to his great plan. This is the doctrine that we call divine providence or sovereignty. It refers to God's government of our lives. We're not the victims of luck or karma. Your days are not by chance. God has mapped out our path before time began. Now, providence means that God is still involved in everything and with everyone. God rules over creation. He rules over history. And yet we do sin. We make choices. We have free will. And we are accountable for our sin. All that's true. But the point of providence is that God is bigger than that. That God ultimately works everything out as he desires because he's bigger than we are. That he's bigger than all of history. He stands over and above history. He's bigger than all creation. He's bigger than all people, even kings and those in authority. He's bigger than all sin. He's bigger than all sinners. He's bigger than everything. He's in charge and he rules and he reigns. And ultimately, everything works out according to his good pleasure. Everything. And so at the end of the book, when Joseph is speaking of the atrocity that his brothers did to him, he says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And as we'll see in the coming weeks, God would use Joseph to feed and save his people. You know, by selling Joseph into Egypt, his brothers have apparently disposed of him for good. But 
unwittingly, they've actually helped the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. If Joseph had never been rejected by his brothers, he could never have become their earthly savior. You know, and I like, I like John Calvin um, on this. He, he has a good sense of humor when he says of this passage, you know, seeing this family, one knows why God graciously is sending Joseph to Egypt. So even being separated from his family was a grace to Joseph, even if he couldn't see it. We are unable to comprehend the full beauty and providence of God. I mean, it's like me trying to explain to my two-year-old son what it's going to take for him to be prepared to go to university. You know, I can tell him and say, hey, Troy, you need to start studying really, really hard. You need to get good marks in school. You need to uh, become trustworthy, be respectful. You need to join some extracurricular activities, maybe join some clubs, do some community service, maybe play an instrument, play a sport, and be prepared for university. He has no concept what university even is. I mean, he can barely hold a book in his hands without chewing on it, much less comprehend these words. No, the same is true for us. God's providence is far greater than we can imagine or comprehend. Now, the exact information probably wouldn't help us anyway. I mean, what we really need to know and understand is that God is with us. I mean, simply put, we need to trust God. We need to trust him. And so when trials come, we don't freak out. We know that God is with us whether we see his hand or not. God is in control over all circumstances, regardless of how confusing your life looks to you. If you feel alone in the pit, know that God is working. There are probably a million meanwhiles going on in that moment that only he knows about. A second observation from the text. Number two. What goes around comes around. What goes around comes around. Picking favorites seems to be a theme in Genesis. I mean, Jacob's dad, Isaac, he had a favorite and it wasn't him. He enjoyed Esau. They could go hunt together and do manly things. Jacob spent his days inside with his mom, Rebecca. I mean, you'd think Jacob would have known better. I mean, he yearned for his father's affection, but when given the chance to be fair to his boys, he did the exact same thing. And the father, who wasn't the favorite, picks his own favorite. He'll later see his favorite taken away from him. And think about this. Jacob used a slaughtered animal in a garment when he deceived his father Isaac in order to steal his brother's blessing. Remember that? He shows up with stew, wearing his brother's clothing and the skin of a slain goat. Well, now Jacob's sons use a goat and their brother's clothing to deceive their father. Jacob's deceit has come full circle. In both cases, the deception led to a desire to murder. Esau wanted to murder Jacob. Here, the brothers want to murder Joseph. What goes around comes around. The deceiver gets deceived again. Remember earlier he deceived Laban and then he gets tricked by being given Leah as his wife instead of Rachel. In God's sovereign justice, people reap consequences for their evil deeds. 
Jacob repeating, was repeating the toxic family pattern that he saw from his youth. I mean, sin has a way of coming back around to us, doesn't it? I mean, these boys perpetuate the family dysfunction they saw as children. I mean, it's sad how we often repeat the sins of our parents. Now, how many men and women have had an alcoholic or abusive parent only to pledge later that when they're a mother, when they are mother or father, they're going to do things differently. They're going to be the best mom or best father in the world. How many people have pledged that only to finally be a mother or father and yet fall into the same sin as their parents? I mean, sin tends to run in families. You didn't like your parents' sin when you were growing up, but do you know where you can find it now? In you. And you've done everything possible to be different from your parents, and yet there are still some similarities, aren't there? And ask yourself, are there patterns of sin in my family that I've not broken in my life? Friends, seek the power of Christ to break the chain of generational sin. Know that the cross of Christ has canceled the power of your sin. It doesn't have a rightful claim on anyone. You can break it. Repent. Admit it. Confess it. And change. Well, a third observation. A third thing. Envy will kill you. Number three, envy will kill you. Well, what is envy? What's that feeling of discontent or covetousness when looking at someone else's success or possessions? I mean, these brothers were angry. They didn't just want what Joseph had. They wanted to ruin him. They see him a long way off, and their anger and bitterness just consumes them. I I thought of the similarities between this story and the story of the prodigal son. Remember when Luke 15, the father sees the lost son a long way off? The text says that he wells up with compassion. It just fills him and he runs to his son to welcome him back and hug him. Well, here, these brothers, they see their brother a long way off. And what happens to them? Well, just that anger just wells up within them and just burns within them. And they say to themselves, well, we should kill this, this boy. Here's our chance. Our father's away. We're in a foreign place. We're in the middle of nowhere. Let's do it. You know, we've always wanted to. Envy numbs your heart to what is true. And apparently the murdering business is exhausting because after throwing Joseph into the pit, the brothers, they sit down to eat. They open up their lunchboxes. Well, he's he's in the hole. Hey guys, anyone want to pass me a shawarma? I mean, this is awful. I mean, I don't get it. They hear the brothers' screams and they're asking to pass the crisps. And I wonder if those screams of their brothers, I wonder if those screams plagued them for years. Envy had deadened their souls. Envy is not just wanting a promotion over your colleague. It's wanting them to get fired and to face all kinds of heartache. Envy is, is wicked and wishing evil on others, wishing that you have more. I mean, here's a, here's a question. Just, just, to, just to ask if you're thinking, well, maybe, maybe I don't even struggle with this, Pastor Dave. I don't know what you're talking about. Let me just ask you this one question to diagnose your own heart. And ask yourself honestly. Do I ever find joy in someone else's pain? Do I ever find joy or just just a little bit of relief 
in someone else's difficult circumstances. How many of you have someone in your life you're jealous of or envy of? Maybe there's always someone. I think all of us are likely to have people in our lives where we struggle with their success. You know, I mean, if someone else is successful, no big deal. But if that person is successful, I want nothing to do with that. Maybe it's a sibling who's more successful than you are. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's someone in the same career as you, but their career is taken off. Maybe they make more money than you. Maybe you think they're more attractive than you. Maybe they're married and you're not. Maybe they have kids and you don't. Maybe they have a nicer car or flat or a better business. I mean, it could be anything. I mean, we get to the point where we can't rejoice with someone else when God blesses them. Friend, none of us are immune to envy. And the brothers were so envious that when Joseph came with the dream, there was no cake, there was no ice cream, there was no celebration. They wanted to be the top man. They wanted the robe. They wanted the father's affection. They weren't going to celebrate what God was doing in and through Joseph. Now, ultimately, though, envy is not directed towards a certain person. Ultimately, those brothers of Joseph, their envy wasn't directed towards Joseph. It was actually discontentment with God. That's why it's such a big deal. That's why you see it at the end of the Ten Commandments, that you shall not cover your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, or anything that your neighbor owns. It's because those are all blessings that God himself has chosen to give to that other person. See, when you're envious, what you're doing is you're not accepting God's choice for your life. I mean, you're saying to God, well, God, what you've given to me is not enough. And when you say that, what you're really saying to God is, God, you're not enough. That, God, you're not wise enough to know what I need. You're saying to God, hey, God, I, I know better than you how my life should go. It's dethroning God and putting yourself on the throne. It's idolatry. It's de-godding of God. Friends, repent of your envy and trust Jesus with what he's given you. Because it's exactly what he's chosen to give to you. Nothing more and nothing less. Rest in him with the CV of your life. Well, finally, a fourth and final observation. Number four. We all try to cover our sin. After Joseph had been sold, Reuben comes back. As I noted, he's a bit crazy. Wait, Joseph's gone. Where can I turn now? He's in despair. He knows he has to face the father. Well, the sons all know they have to do something before facing the father. They could have told the truth. But that wouldn't work, they think. So they got his robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped it in blood. It's a strategic cover-up. And this is the pattern we see in Genesis, isn't it? When people sin, they try to cover it up. Adam and Eve, what did they use? Use those fig leaves. And for us, it could be any number of things. When we sin, we have two choices when facing the Father. 
Either we repent, we acknowledge our sin, confess it, turn from it, or we try to cover it up. The brothers had a choice. Tell the truth and God will be angry, perhaps. Or instead, let's fake a murder and cover it up. And they did that and God wasn't, the the dad wasn't angry. He was grieved. One sin leads to another sin, which leads to another sin. It's an elaborate cover-up. Well, you and I are the same way. Sin leads us to a downward spiral of lies. Maybe you're in a downward spiral right now. Maybe instead of repenting, you've taken that second option. You're trying to cover up your sin. Maybe you're addicted to gambling and you've lost half of your family savings. But instead of coming clean about your bank account to your spouse, you keep trying to win it back secretly. Or maybe there are times you just need a break and so you leave your family or leave your home for some alone time. But what you're really doing is indulging in some secret sin that no one knows about. Could be anything. Could be excessive drinking. Could be improper business dealings to try to make more money because you think you need it. Or it could be a secret pornography addiction. Could be escaping reality by just spending more and more money that you don't really have. Well, friends, I plead with you to stop trying to cover up your sin and and make things worse. Instead, come clean. Come clean and repent because there's hope. You don't have to be like these brothers in our our text today. When as you read the story, I want you to know that you and I are not Joseph in this story. You You may think we're Joseph because maybe he's the best one in the story here. But we're not. We're not the one who was sinned against. If we're anyone in the story, we're the brothers. We're the brothers because we're just like them. Like Paul once said, none of us are righteous, not even one. And all of us will have to face God the Father one day. Just like those brothers have to face their father. And we all try to cover up our sin and we fail to do so. But there is another one who came who really can cover your sin. Joseph was sent to Egypt because of his brother's sin. But friends, I want you to know that there was another one who went to Egypt because of your sin. Like Joseph, who was stripped of his robe and sent to a foreign land, this other son was stripped of his robe of glory and left heaven to go to a foreign land. Now, as Joseph was betrayed for 20 pieces of silver, this other son, this greater son, was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. You see that Joseph was sinned against. This other son was also sinned against, but not by a dozen brothers or so, but by the whole world. As Joseph is betrayed by those closest to him, this other son is betrayed by one closest to him. As Joseph's brothers didn't believe him, this other son's brothers didn't believe him either. Just like they threw Joseph in a pit, this son, this greater son, was also thrown into a, a pit. But it was far deeper than a physical cave. It was a pit filled with the sin of all humanity and the wrath of God. From the pit, Joseph cried out to his brothers asking for help. Well, this other son from the pit, he cried out too. But he cried out in the agony of facing the wrath not only of his brothers, but of God himself. Just like they wanted to murder Joseph, they wanted to murder this son. And in fact, they did. And as Joseph gets lifted out of that pit, 
This greater son was lifted up on the third day, but not from almost death. He really did die, and he was resurrected from the dead. Joseph was being formed into the savior of his family and others, whereas this son, Jesus Christ, he became the savior of the world in his time and for all times. Friend, as you read this story, as you see this son, Joseph, who was sinned against, and as you see the greater son, Jesus Christ, who was sinned against by all of us, friend, I hope you can see that in all of your trials, there will be despair. There will be envy. You will be without hope unless, unless you see that Jesus lost the Father's love so you could have it. Unless you see that he lost the robe of many colors so you could wear it and be called his child. No, our sin separates us from this God and we deserve death and judgment. But there was a greater Joseph, a greater son who came to give us eternal life. Jesus died on the cross. He rose from that grave to bring you new life. And friend, if you're not yet a follower of Christ, repent of your sin. Don't try to cover up your sin with any endless amount of things. Repent of it. Bring it out in the open. Confess it. Tell others. And most of all, tell God and turn to you and he will save you. He will take you out of your pit of death and despair. He will put that robe on you and he will give you everlasting life today and forevermore. Oh friend, this this story this of salvation through Jesus is called the gospel. It's called the good news. And it's a true story, much like the one we studied earlier today. It's a story that was hard to understand what God was doing behind the scenes in that time. I mean, it looked like Jesus was killed forever. Meanwhile, he was saving his people through his death. a story that culminated in God keeping his promises to his people. Promises made were promises kept. And he did so by providentially doing more than we could have ever seen or imagined. Oh, the hidden hand of God was everywhere. Friends, let's trust this God. God is doing more in your life than you can see right now. Let's pray together. Father, you are the king over creation and the Lord of our lives. You are providentially in control over our present sickness, our family distress, our triumphs, and our tragedies. You're the savior of our eternity and the father of our mundane hours. Help us to trust you and to build our hope on nothing less than Christ's work on the cross. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.